I hear myself now. Okay. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you that you loved us so much that you would come from heaven as our light, as our teacher, as our guide, as our substitutionary atonement, Father. Not only do you show us the way, but you show us so much grace. And Father, the way, Lord, you give us, you also give us the power and you give us the presence and your spirit inside of us to, to help us walk that way. And Father, it's because you have restored our relationship with the Father by giving your life on the cross to atone for our sin. It's because of that reason that we can even be on the way in the first place. So I just pray right now, Lord, that you would mobilize us and you would set us on the path so that we can be on this way together. Because we Christians are the body of Christ. We are the people on the way, Lord. We're not just people who gather together out of friendship, not just those who gather out of love, but we gather out of faith and confidence that you are the way, you are the truth, and you are the life, and there's no one who gets to the Father except through you. And so, Father, would you come and shape our hearts this morning? In your name I pray, amen. 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 Well, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to uh, open up to Matthew chapter 11. If you don't have your Bible, share with your neighbor. Uh, we are going to flip to a few passages this morning, so I hope you're fast with your thumb. Uh, paper Bibles are great. Um, so the text for this morning will come from Matthew chapter 11. Uh, we're going to read from verse 1 through 15. I'm going to be reading from the ESV version. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. And now what John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. What an interesting passage. I feel like Matthew chapter 11 is possibly one of the most misunderstood chapters in all of the Gospels. And I, and I think a lot of us pastors are the reason why it's so misunderstood. Because what we like to do as pastors is we like to chop up Matthew chapter 11. Because Matthew chapter 11 is so full of good stuff, right? And we chop them up into little pieces and we give it to you separately in different sermons. And separately, they sound so great and it makes sense, but sometimes you can miss the meaning that comes from putting it all together. And so I'm gonna to try to put it all together for us this morning because this is the text that the lectionary has chosen for the third week of Advent. 
you know, the season where we are coming together to talk about what does it mean to wait for the coming of God. Now, now I love art, and uh, the, the artist here, his name is uh, Peter Bruegel the Older, right? And he was an artist uh, in Northern Renaissance. So if you're familiar with art, um, during the Renaissance period, there actually kind of came two different schools of art. There is the Southern Renaissance, which many of you are familiar with, and that is the, the art that was centered around Italy. And if you think of like Raphael, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, right, uh, you know, Titian, a, a lot of those were the Southern Renaissance masters. And, and what I associate with Southern Renaissance paintings is just a lot of soft focus, a lot of you know, pretty faces. You know, Raphael's famous for his little baby angels, and it looks like he's got this little like, soft focus thing going on. I think that the Southern Renaissance, they invented Instagram filters before anybody else did. But the Northern Renaissance was really different because life in the North was very different. Whereas life in Italy was much more cosmopolitan, much, much more um, rich, right? Uh, all the wealth of Europe was centered in that time right around Rome and around Italy. But in the North, life was much colder, it was harsher, and in many ways it was much more real. In many ways it was much more violent. So the art that came out of the north, just like the art that came out of the south, reflected on the truth of the gospel, but they came to a very different conclusion in many ways. Now, I absolutely love Bruegel the Older, and here's why. Because Bruegel looked at the art of the Southern Renaissance, uh, we think that you know, he probably had some exposure to it. And he said, you know, those are some really pretty pictures, but they're not really real, you know? Um, there's this one... Um, I forgot the artist now. I think it's uh, Perugino or something like that. Uh, he, he makes this painting of the crucifixion of, uh, no, it's not the crucifixion of Christ. It's the martyrdom of St. Sebastian. Okay, no, no relationship to our pastor. Okay. But St. Sebastian in history was martyred by people shooting arrows at him. And in this very beautiful picture of the martyrdom of St. Sebastian, St. Sebastian has just got this perfect skin and he's just kind of his arms like this. And there's like one little arrow wound and he's just like, ugh, <laughs> Right? And, and Bruegel's like, that's, that's not real. It's not real. And so he paints pictures of townspeople. And when he paints pictures of townspeople, he makes them real. And, in, and if you look at his pictures, they're doing real things. And he loves to depict them even in their sin. Not to shame them, but to say, hey, this is how people live. People who suffer from the hardship of life go to the tavern and they get drunk and they beat each other up, and they lie to each other, and they steal from each other, and they're two-faced, and they're hypocritical. But I absolutely love this picture, because this is a picture of the ministry of John the Baptist. And if you look at this picture, if you don't know where to look, you may not even recognize where John the Baptist is. But if you look very carefully, there's a tan figure right around the center, slightly off to the left. He's kind of doing this whole thing. That's John the Baptist. He fits right in with the people. And even though all the people all around, they're, they're in their sin, they're talking, they're not really paying attention to each other, there's babies crying, animals doing their thing, but they've all been drawn by the gospel. And this painting makes you think, what is it about this man who has nothing to offer, who's wearing very simple, very ugly clothes? He fits right in with the people, but everybody is drawn to him. It's not because of the man. It's because of the message. And the message is this. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand.
Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Because everybody who lives a life of sin, there's a part of them that knows there is no way that this can stand forever. No one who makes a living out of stealing no, there's someone, they don't think that I, I, stealing can go on forever. There's a part of them that knows deep down inside, at some point the whole system is going to collapse. Most of the time, people who do that, they're just thinking, I'm going to try to get rich and get what I can as long as the system still stands. Repent for the kingdom of, of, of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist is saying that time for the old system is coming to a close because God is coming. And when he comes, he's going to set things right. And when he comes to set things right, you want to be on the right side of the equation. That word repent is the gospel. It's such good news. It's good news because it says there's still a chance. You may be a thief, but you can be something else. There's still time. Unfortunately, many of us who live in a shame-based culture, we look at the word repent, and we have a different connotation. The first thing that we think of is shame. And there's so many of us, and I include myself in this, sometimes I would rather die in my shame than live in the freedom of Christ because I don't want my shame to be exposed. I don't want people to see my junk. I don't want people to see my sin. I don't want them to see my brokenness. And so the gospel is not just good news, but it's confrontation because it says to you, the cost of repentance is this. Not that everybody will laugh at you and mock you and put you to shame, but do you have the courage in front of everyone to take those things you're ashamed of and lift them up to the Lord? Because the promise of the Lord is this. He will cover you. But do you trust him? See, when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die for your sin. He died for your shame. His blood covers you, meaning that for all the, the transgressions that you had, the psalmist says, you know, like, blot out my transgressions. That there's some transgressions that are so deep that I've committed that can never be erased. But would you cover them up with your ink? Blot it out with your blood. Christ covers your shame. And so the call to repent is, are you willing to take that risk? To take that brokenness? To take that sin? To take that shame? And just say, Jesus, it's yours, and in exchange, I want the identity that you give me as a child of God. For those who have tired of the burden that they carry, the, the, the sin and the shame and the hiding and the, you know, the, the, the always trying to be something that you're not and pretend that people, hope that people will like you, and when you get tired of that, when you hear this word, repent for the kingdom of God as I hand, that's such good news. But if I think I can keep on pretending indefinitely, if I think that no one will ever find me out, then this becomes very scary to me. Because then I fear that the kingdom of God is going to come and expose me. So not only is the gospel good news, but the gospel also brings its own kind of judgment. It discerns your heart by how you respond to it. And that's what John the Baptist did. Now, this picture that, that, that's up there, that's clearly not John the Baptist, right? He, he looks like a king. This picture is uh, actually from the 18th, 17th century. It's a, uh, a French painter named uh, James Tissot. 
And he's painting a picture of Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. And this is the Herod that is always associated with Jesus and John the Baptist. Because one of the things about John the Baptist and his ministry was he just went to whoever would listen. And so the very poor would listen to him, but so would the very rich. And even Herod would invite John the Baptist to listen to him. Now, you, you could be cynical and say maybe that's just a very uh, savvy political move, right? Because uh, you know, John had the favor of many people. But I think there was also something else to it. Like you could see both not only in the John the Baptist text, but in, for example, the histories of Josephus, who's not even a Christian, he's a secular Jewish historian, that there was something about John's the message that touched some part of Herod's heart. And John would come because he would be invited by Herod Antipas multiple times to, you know, to preach, and, and, and Herod would listen to him. But, but Herod also was very driven by his passions and his brokenness. And one of the things that he was famous for is he was in a political marriage, right? Uh, Herod the Great uh, was a Nabataean who married a Jewish princess. So Herod Antipas is half Jewish, half Nabataean. He went back to his uh, Nabataean uncle and found another uh, woman there to marry to kind of solidify his political position. But there was no love in it. But then he goes on a vacation to Rome hangs out with his brother, falls in love with his brother's wife, who's also his niece. And he's like, oh, I like her. So he starts making plans to divorce his wife and marry his niece, who's also his brother's wife. But he's also, at the same time, inviting John, you know, John the Baptist to come and preach to him. And at some point, John the Baptist, because he's a man of truth, full of truth, full of grace, not quite Jesus, but he, he emulates that Jesus life, he says, you know, I can't just preach a message to you. I got to say, what you're doing is wrong. Right now, it's personal for Herod. What you're doing is wrong, and you got to turn. And Herod doesn't decide. He tries not to decide. He tries to put it off. But both the gospel narrative and also the history of Josephus tells us that his wife hears this, and, and uh, his wife is just like, I don't know about this preacher guy. So there's a banquet, and his wife's daughter, Salome, uh, dances. And Herod, he's drunk, he's happy, he's surrounded by his friends. He says, oh, wow, you did such a great job dancing. Let, let, let me show my honor by giving you honor, okay? What do you want? Anything you want up to half my kingdom, you can have. And Salome says, give me the head of John the Baptist. And, John, and, and Herod doesn't want to do it. Herod's just like frozen in place, but his friends are all watching. His honor is at stake. He cares more about his reputation. He cares more about his face than he cares about the kingdom of God. And instead of heeding the words to repent, he goes and takes John the Baptist's head. So that's the story of John the Baptist, and it's really important for today's passage because today's passage, you know, John hasn't passed away yet. But in today's passage, John is still in prison. Let's, let's go back a little bit in John's ministry. Because there's one other really noteworthy thing about John the Baptist's ministry, and it's that he was the one who recognized and baptized Jesus. See, the scriptures tell us that John the Baptist is the forerunner to Jesus. Jesus' ministry was to come and bring the kingdom of God. So before the kingdom of God could come, a messenger had to go out in front of the kingdom of God and say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. 
And then in this beautiful moment that's recorded in the Gospels, multiple Gospels, Jesus comes, and the Gospel of John puts the words into John the Baptist's mouth, right? John looks up and he just says, Behold, this is the Lamb who has come for the sins of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John chapter 1, verse 29. So he recognizes this is the Messiah. This is the King who has come. This is the Word made flesh. And not only that, when Jesus comes and, and says, hey, I need to be baptized by you, and, and John says, no, don't, I can't baptize you. I'm not worthy. And Jesus says, no, I've got to do this to show my submission to the Father. And so John the Baptist baptizes him. And actually, that begins the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. So Jesus gets baptized immediately. Well, first he gets baptized, the Spirit of God falls upon him. And immediately it says the Spirit of God drives Jesus out into the wilderness. He's tempted for 40 days. He comes back out of the wilderness. And now he begins his ministry. And it's like a really epic moment. If they made a movie, like they have actually made many movies of Jesus' life, right? Like every one of these movies, this is an epic moment. So Jesus is a young man. He's recognized as a man finally because he's finally entered his early 30s. And uh, let me just read it for you. This is uh, Luke uh, chapter 4, verses 16 to 31. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on a Sabbath. And he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow, it's like he goes into the synagogue where people are just used to talking, talking, talking about Messiah, talking, talking about kingdom of God. They talk about it in church, they go home and they live their lives. They come back again, talk about it some more, go and live their lives. Jesus comes and is like, hey, do you want to read the Bible this morning? He's like, sure, I'd love to. Give him Isaiah's scroll, opens it up, and he reads, this is what the kingdom of God is. The spirit of the Lord is upon me to do what? Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he rolls up the book, right? And he just says, today, in me, this scripture has been fulfilled. Wow, you can just imagine no one knows what to do. But this is Jesus' mission statement. And then so what does he do? Right? He goes around teaching, he goes around preaching, but he also starts to gather disciples. And we read about this process of him gathering disciples. What does he do with his disciples? If you turn, uh, you don't have to turn right now, but in your own time, Matthew chapter 10 tells us what Jesus does with his disciples in his ministry. Because what he actually does is he sends them out two by two to all the villages. Now that the kingdom of God has come, the job of disciples is to go to all the towns and proclaim, here is the kingdom of God. The king has come. And he says, don't take any money with you. Don't take your shoes. Don't take your backpack. Don't take anything. Why not? Why don't take anything? Because he wants to not just announce the kingdom of God. He wants his disciples to demonstrate the kingdom of God by showing how God provides. And one of the things he tells them is like, 
when you go to a place, ask for the person of peace. And when there's a person of peace, right, then they're going to welcome you into their home. But if they don't welcome you into their home, then kick off the dust from your shoes and go on to the next village because that village has rejected the kingdom. They didn't receive the message when it came. So there's two things that happen in Matthew chapter 10 that I want you to kind of fix in your mind. God sends his people out to all the different villages to announce the kingdom, but he doesn't send them alone. He sends them out not just to announce, but to demonstrate the works of the kingdom. So that as they go, what happens to the people in the villages? The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, and the prisoners are set free. That's why the villages are judged for still rejecting the gospel because they have seen the works of Jesus and they've seen the works of God through disciples of Jesus and they still refuse to believe. But there's a second thing that's really important. Jesus tells them in Matthew chapter 10, don't expect people to like you. Don't expect people to like you. He says, they hated me and whatever they do to the master, they're going to do to the student. And he, he gives us this extraordinary kind of passage, right? If you read Matthew chapter 10, it's, it's quite painful for some of us who live in a very comfortable life here to read. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 39. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. What a great Christmas passage. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. Jesus said this. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Because the reality is this. John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the life and the light of men. And he came from heaven to earth to show us the light and the darkness and to save us. But it says in John chapter 1, the darkness resisted. And the darkness, even in me, in us, resists the presence of the light, the darkness in our community, the darkness in our world resists the interference and the rule and the presence of light. So Jesus says, if you are going to be my disciple, you have to be ready for that process, that conflict, the clash between darkness and light. It's not a clash where sometimes we imagine in movies, we're like, oh, who's going to win? Is the darkness going to win or is the light going to win, right? No, we already know who's going to win. We have the book of Revelation. We have the Gospels. Jesus Christ won the victory at the cross. However, the Gospel says to you and me, you have to endure. You have to endure until you see the final victory. Don't give up. Persist. Persevere. Following Christ will be hard. Waiting for Christ will be hard. You will suffer setback. You will suffer disappointment. God will give you his voice. You will listen to his voice. And sometimes his voice will lead you into what looks like failure. And you'll wonder if you heard him correctly, but you clearly did. 
And you're going to want to ask God, what happened? I don't understand. And God's word to you is, persist, for I am coming soon. Persevere, for I'm coming soon. So now we come to our text today, Matthew chapter 11, 2, 3. Now, when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the expected one? Or shall we look for someone else? John is in prison. He has been faithful. He has been faithful and true to God's calling on his life. And out of even love for this evil king Herod, he pronounced, the, 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 just said, you know, you've got to turn away from your sin. And his reward for his faithfulness was to be thrown into prison. And now while John is in prison, he's now hearing about what Jesus and his disciples are doing because just a chapter before this in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is sending out his disciples two by two. And wow, what's happening? The blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing, the lame are walking. The gospel's, hearing the po- the, 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 the gospel's going to the poor and the oppressed. John knows this and John knows his Bible. So it's a very interesting thing when he says, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, who is Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ means Messiah. He already knows the answer to his own question. He's asking Messiah, are you the Messiah? Or should we look for someone else? Why is John asking this? It's not because he doesn't know. It's because he's being tested by his suffering. How many of us in our deepest suffering go back to some of the most foundational things that we thought we believed and we're not sure? From children in school, we're, we're singing, God is so good. And then tragedy strikes in our life. And God, are you good? We sing, Jesus is Lord. And then when it seems like circumstance or evil or tragedy strikes, and we're like, God, I thought you loved me. Are you Lord? Are you Savior? Are you peace? Are you counselor? You said that you would be my friend and you would be present. Why are you silent, God? You see, every believer gets tested. Are you the expected one? Or should we look for someone else? And Jesus answers and says to John, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So, you know, we we read from Isaiah 35 this morning, and then when we were reading the passage from Luke that quoted from Isaiah 61, We remember what the messianic promises are, right? What happens when Messiah comes? The blind see. The deaf hear. The lame walk. The gospel gets preached to them. And one more thing. You remember what the last thing was? The prisoners are set free. What does Jesus not say to John the Baptist? He leaves it out. He's telling John, you're going to die in prison. 
That's why he says, blessed are those who do not take offense at me. Because who called him to prison? God did. Every believer who seeks to follow God, who seeks to grow in God, will wrestle with that deep disappointment in God. How do you deal with your disappointment? How do you deal with your disappointment? I want to talk about faith for a quick moment here. One of the most important lessons I've ever learned about faith is that faith is not a feeling. Because some of the most faithful moments I've seen in my life and the lives of people around me, they didn't feel very faithful at all. And I've seen a lot of people go through moments where they feel so full of faith, but when they're tested, they've got nothing. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is an expectation that God is exactly who he says he is and will do everything he has promised to do. I can't have faith for God to give me a Ferrari because he never promised me a Ferrari. But he did promise me he will give me everything I need for faith and godliness, says in the book of Romans. So if there's something I need for godliness, I have the right to have an expectation on God to give me what I need because he promised it. He says in Jeremiah, if you seek me, you will find me if you search with all your heart. If I am searching for God with all my heart, I have a right to expect from God that he will be found by me because he promised it in his word. Faith is expectation for God to be who he has said he is and for him to do what he has said he will do. But there are times when that is tested. So here in the word of God, in the book of Isaiah, God says when the Messiah comes, the prisoner will be set free. Right? Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Messiah is here. Jesus Christ is here. And the Messiah is now saying to John the Baptist, but you're not going to be set free. How do you deal with that? Let's go on to Matthew 11, verse 7. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken in the wind. But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you and will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Let's start at the end and work backwards. What makes a prophet great? How many miracles you do? How great your sermon is when you preach? See, according to the Jews and their community, the greatness of a prophet is proportional to the greatness of the message that he or she carries. The greatness of a prophet is proportional to the greatness of the message that he or she carries. So John the Baptist is the greatest prophet ever, you know, pre-Jesus, because his message was the greatest ever. His assignment, his message was to announce the coming of God into the world. There is no greater message, therefore there is no greater prophet. And what he's saying about John in this thing, he's saying John has been faithful. I want you to get something of this. 
I am blown away by the compassion of Jesus. Here's John in his most difficult moment. He's wrestling with his disappointment. And if you look at the evidence, truth be told, he's probably more on the side of giving up than holding on. Who has a right to judge more than Jesus himself does? But what does Jesus say about him? You see how great this guy is? Jesus honors him. You know, sometimes we feel in our disappointment that we failed God because we have made our faith about performance and not about grace. See, when your faith is your ability to hold on, your ability to, to you know, withstand any type of persecution and torture and, ah, oh, I'm going to do it. When your faith is about your ability to do all the right things, know all the right things, say all the right things, then you will be, feel honored when you can do them and you will feel shamed when you cannot do them. But there comes a point in every Christian's life when you cannot do it. But if your identity in God and your belonging in the people of God is built on grace, then what matters is not how you feel about your performance or how others feel about your performance. What matters is what Jesus thinks about you. And in this moment of greatest testing, Jesus looks at John the Baptist and says, guys, this is the gold standard. I honor this guy so much. I honor this guy so much. See, when you persist, when you guys are at the end of your rope, but you refuse to give up in the character of God, you refuse to give up in the goodness of God, when you're like, I don't feel that you're good, God, and I haven't felt that you're good for two weeks, but I'm still going to praise you. I don't want to go to church but I'm going to come, and I don't want to see any of the people at church, but the whole reason why I'm in church is because I'm going to give you an offering of praise this morning. I'm not singing loud this morning because I feel the words on the screen. I'm singing loud this morning because I don't feel the words on the screen, but I know they are true, and so I'm going to proclaim them because that is who I am, and this is who you are. See, when you persist in this, heaven is rejoicing over you. Heaven looks at you. And the father is bragging about you to the angels. Do you see my daughter? Do you see my son? I'm so proud of him. I'm so proud of her. That's the first thing that strikes me about this passage. But the second thing that strikes me about this passage is this. When he says that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John, it's not because you and I are better than John the Baptist. We are not. I have not gone to the desert. I have not put on camel's clothes. I have not had the integrity or the faithfulness or the resoluteness or the truth-telling of John the Baptist. I have not. So why am I greater than John the Baptist? Because the greatness of a prophet is proportional to the greatness of the message they carry. John's message is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Our message is, Go therefore into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded them for lo, even to the end of the age. At the end of the age, the Lord comes back. You are great because of the message that you carry. Will you be faithful like John? 
God will not judge you by your success because he will not always lead you into success. Did, was, did the Father lead Jesus Christ to the cross? Yes. Did he die on the cross? Yes. We think about a missionary like Jim Elliot. Did God lead him to the Amazon? Yes. Did he die in the, des- in, in the Amazon? Yes. The Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, he goes to Corinth and Ephesus, and there's a major revival, and he starts two of the greatest churches in the ancient Mediterranean world. The church of Ephesus especially, it grew to thousands. It was full of power and full of grace. Amazing leaders were being discipled and raised out of it. He stayed there for about two years building up that church, and then God shows up to Paul with a dream. And he sees a man coming from Macedonia, and he says, hey, come over here, come over here. So instead of going the way that he was going to go, Paul turns around and goes to Macedonia, and there for the next couple of years, he is met with nothing but persecution, and the churches he builds never get bigger than a life group. Did God lead him to Macedonia? Yes. Did he go into what felt like failure? Yeah. You see, if you follow God, that's going to happen. Sometimes you're like, God... I thought you told me to buy the house and I bought the house and my equity dropped like 50% in two weeks. God, I thought you said that that's what you wanted me to do. God, I thought you said you wanted me to take this job. God, I thought you said you wanted me to make this decision. I'm trying to follow you, God. Why does it seem like when I follow you, this thing is not met with success? Here's why. Because God is looking for fruitfulness more than success or comfort. Why did Paul get sent to Macedonia? Because God wanted the people of Macedonia to hear the gospel, not because he wanted Paul to be successful. What is the metric that you measure your life by? Is it it self-centered or Christ-centered? Is it based on your idea of what God wants, or is it based on God's idea of what he wants? So God will not judge you by your success, but he will judge you by your faithfulness and perseverance. And when he judged John the Baptist, he found him to be excellent. And we come to this verse. It's a very problematic verse. And it's a problematic verse because I cannot find a single English translation that's able to do everything it needs to do because it's just it's, it's impossible. But I'm, I'm going to read to you two of the more popular translations for you. Okay, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. That's the NASB, and the NIV says, "From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it." And so people being really confused by this, they're not quite sure how to interpret this. And, and, and they're, they're thinking maybe, maybe Jesus is talking about persecution, right? Maybe that like from the days of John the Baptist until now, pe- you know, uh, evil people have been going to the church and persecuted them and, and taking people away and you're going to suffer. But if you look at both the contemporaries around what Jesus is saying and also what he's saying in Matthew chapter 10, you realize something. There was a Jewish uh, teacher in the second century who would write this, and he's not writing about Jesus. He's writing about the law. He's talking about students, you know, Jewish students of the law 
And he puts them in an analogy like this. He says, like, it's like they are going into heaven and they are raiding heaven to take the law for themselves. Now, he doesn't actually think that students of the law are climbing into heaven and somehow like attacking you know, you know, God's temple up there and stealing the law and taking it down. That's not what he means. What he's talking about, what the, the, the intention of this type of phrase is, is to give you a sort of shocking analogy to describe the type of aggression and forcefulness that disciples need to live their life and walk out their discipleship with. So this is kind of my take on it. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven is laid hold of by aggression and the forceful season. Because what's Jesus talking about? When Jesus came, he was baptized by John, and then uh, he went to the desert to be tested, and then he comes out and he announces in the synagogue, the kingdom of heaven is here. He was right. The kingdom of heaven had arrived. But then he sends out his disciples two by two, and by their aggressive faithfulness, they are going into village by village, coming against opposition, coming against failure. Sometimes they were received, sometimes they were beaten out but they went with the aggressive hope and faith proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is here. And it is that aggressiveness, that spiritual initiative in the face of disappointment, in the face of setback, in the face of their own fear, in their own doubt saying, God, are you good? I'm gonna believe that you're good even though I faced a setback before, even though you took something very valuable from me but I also remember all the goodness that you have poured out on me. And I'm going to choose to believe what you have said in your word. You are good to me. I'm going to go. You took my friend's life last time he went, but that's not going to stop me. I'm going to go. There's a phrase that came from the early church, basically to the effect that um, the kingdom of God is watered by the blood of martyrs. One of my favorite stories, absolute favorite stories. Uh, some of you guys know, if you know your world history, that Spain used to be a Muslim country. It was a Muslim country for several hundred years. And most of the Christians had been pushed up to the very, very north, the northern kingdoms of Asturias. But there were still Christians who lived in the Muslim cities. And what happened is that as generations passed, their children became Muslim. And the memory of Christianity, the memory of the gospel and the witness was disappearing from Spain. So there was a period of time for about a few years where God actually moved about 10 to 12 people. And they just walked into the synagogue, not synagogues, to the, um, the mosques. And during the, the, um, the Quran reading time, and they just stood up and they started to preach the gospel. Most of them were cut down within 45 seconds. But because of them, the memory of the gospel did not fade from Spain. A generation remembered who Jesus was. The kingdom of heaven is seized by aggression. We're here for Advent. It's the third week of Advent. And Advent, we're talking about waiting. Sometimes we can get the idea of waiting mixed up. 
Waiting is not just this passive, self-interested optimism. Well, you know, yeah, God's coming, so I'm just going to live my life as best as I can, and I'm going to live for myself, and then when Jesus comes, we're going to celebrate, right, guys? No, that's not Advent waiting. And it's not skeptical arms crossed like, well, okay, I believe it when I see it. Because that's not faithful. It's not fearful and it's not defeated in the face of opposition, even though we will be sorely tested. It means that even after you're tested. Can I just say something? Do you realize that with persecution, it's actually harder after you've been persecuted once? I used to think that if you've gone through it, then that kind of toughens you up and you're better at it. No, it's actually harder. Those of you who are older, you know, it is harder to live for the Lord and live sacrificially to the Lord when you're older than when you're younger. There's no easier time than your 20s to take risks for God because you're full of energy. You have relatively little to lose. You have relatively few responsibilities in life and people are hanging on to you, right? And you don't know, you, have, you have, just have less things to lose. But by the time you're like 50 or 60, it's much harder because you have people who depend upon you. And you have things that you need to do. And it actually costs you more. But no matter what age we are, we have a Lord. We have a Lord who's looking for fruitfulness from us. And Advent waiting is to be aggressive in your waiting to be aggressive with your faith, not with violence. Christians are nonviolent. We don't fight with the weapons of the enemy. But we fight with our faith, with our trust, with our hope. We're playing king of the mountain. The world's going to do everything he can to pull you off of your faith. If you stay on the mountain, you win. And by faith, I'm not talking about pulling off of like believing your core beliefs, although your beliefs are important. I'm talking about losing your belief that God is good, that God is Lord, and that he's coming back, that he's your savior, and that the gospel was advancing, not retreating. We wait with forceful determination and aggressive perseverance, even in the face of shame, failure, and disappointment holding fast to the faithfulness of God, to his promises. That's what it means for us to be a gospel-centered church, to be a gospel-centered family. I'm going to end with two quotes. Jim Elliott, who was only 28 when he gave his life for the Lord, he says, rest in this. It is his business, God's business, to lead, command, impel, send, call, or whatever you want to call it. It is your business to obey, follow, move, respond, or what have you. We're tested by our obedience. And a personal spiritual hero of mine is William Borden, who at the age of 25, he died on his way to go bring the gospel to China. Um, He was one of the wealthiest young men in America at the time. Um, But he was convicted by a call in his life. He wanted actually to be a missionary in his teenage years. Uh, and his father is like, okay, well, wait till you're 21 before you decide. So he was 21. He was like, no, Lord, I, I, I mean, Father, I, I want to go to China and bring the gospel there. He ends up going to Egypt. And before he gets to China, he dies of meningitis, you know, has a, has, has a, uh, a fever. But in his Bible, at different points in his life, he wrote these lines. 
and he left it for us. No reserves, no retreat, no regrets. His grave is still in Cairo, but it's, it's, it's barely marked, and, and someone has built a wall right up against it now. So if you don't know where to look, you won't find it. And even though he was the son of one of the wealthiest people on earth, his grave, you can barely read the epitaph that at the bottom of his tombstone it's written, this life makes no sense except for the grace of Jesus Christ. That's what it writes, says, says on his tombstone. May that be said of us. As you prepare your hearts for Christmas, are you being aggressive with your faith? Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. We confess, Lord, that we are captive to our self-centered desires, to our idols and our bales that we sacrifice at because they promise to give us what we want. We are captive, Lord God, to our hypocrisies so that we can feel like we're still believing even in many ways as we've lost our belief. But we confess not in hopelessness but in hope because you say in your word that those who humble themselves will receive grace and favor from you. And we ask you, revive us again. We ask you, give us real faith real hope, real initiative, real aggression. Let us taste and see that the Lord is good so that we will be fearless when we go out to the villages of the world, two by two, looking for the people of peace, proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is here. I pray this in your name, amen.